This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, online gaming solves big genome problems. A renowned South African jurist says Israel practices apartheid in the occupied Palestinian West Bank. A young Afghan refugee shares his harrowing tale of flight to Canada. And old tunes that never fade may jog other memories that do. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. In the wake of the most recent slaughter of innocents down in the States, a few thoughts worth considering. The 2008 Supreme Court case, District of Columbia versus Heller, ruled that the Second Amendment does indeed confer an individual right to bear arms for self-defense. Advocates for unlimited gun rights in the states maintain that the right of self-defense includes defense against the government of the United States of America. Setting aside of the legitimacy of this interpretation of either Heller or the text of the Second Amendment, the bulwark against state tyranny argument for individual gun rights raises a few troubling questions. How is tyranny defined? Does every free citizen get to decide when the state is violating their rights and wield his or her AR-15 accordingly? Will an AR-15 defend a freedom-loving citizen from the full military force of the U.S. federal government? What happens when free citizens stockpiling AR-15s as a bulwark against government tyranny devolve into armed paramilitaries attacking people they consider enemies? Since the rule of law would have given way to armed insurrection, what would be the glue holding people and groups together? The answer is very little, if anything. The argument that an armed citizenry today would function like the Minutemen during the Revolutionary War is misguided, not to mention ahistorical. The Minutemen were trained, organized, disciplined units sanctioned by young America's leaders. Their mission was to oppose a foreign country on the other side of an ocean, not wage insurrection against their own elected government. Furthermore, the imbalance and lethal capacity between the U.S. military and randomly organized militias is hard to overstate. Remember Ruby Ridge? Remember Waco? Yes, the men who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were determined to prevent the kind of authoritarian tyranny that made them break away from England. But the bulwark they had in mind against that tyranny was embodied in precisely the democratic infrastructure they created, the rule of law. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Okay. 
by Mississippi Delta blues man Tommy Johnson back in 1928. Philo is an online game with a highly useful aim, helping geneticists identify DNA sequences linked to medical disorders. A new version of Philo is now in the works, incorporating brand new puzzles for Philo's tens of thousands of gamers to solve in exchange for enhanced feedback and amusing rewards. Among the vexing problems to be solved, the fine structure of RNA and how bacterial chromosomes have evolved, Olivier Tremblay-Savard is part of the bioinformatics team developing the new game at the University of Manitoba. You're not a biologist or a molecular biologist. You must have some background in molecular biology. I'm wondering how one makes that leap from where how the connection is established between people who actually study nucleotide sequences and genomics and people who are devising algorithms and, and, and computer puzzles to solve problems that are useful to those who are trying to figure out you know who's related to whom and, and how evolution has happened. Yeah, so um, basically this, I've been studying in bioinformatics since the bachelor degree, so um, uh, I was trained as a bioinformatician, so that means that, you know, when I was doing my undergrad degree, half of my classes were in biochemistry, in molecular biology, and half of my classes were in computer science. So <clears throat> I've been, like, doing interdisciplinary research since the, the very beginning. Oh, so you understand both sides of the, of the equation, the molecular biology and the 
and the coding. Exactly. So I, I like to say that uh, a good bioinformatician is a good translator. So he can understand the language of biology and he can understand the language of computer science and he can talk to uh, both types of researchers. Tell me about, about some of the other uh, new applications that will be incorporated into Philo. You've talked about a large-scale uh, genome evolution and pathways. What other, what other functionalities and, and games will be incorporated into the new Philo? Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're interested in uh, transcription factors and coding sequences for transcription factors. What are these and why are they, why are they so useful? Uh, once again, that's, uh, that's more part of what they're doing at McGill. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is that there's a, there's a ton of different problems that are related with multiple sequence alignment that you can help solve uh, with, with Fido, for example. And in general, we're interested in, uh, in, in merging all of those games together on our platform of games in, in genomics. And basically, what we would like to have is a platform where players could you know, seamlessly jump from one game on one specific problem to another game that targets a different problem and then kind of solve <clears throat> the full, you know, maybe um, have a, a view of all the different problems at the same time maybe and also learn at the same time. So one of the things that we're interested in in our platform is to develop the educational side of it where it would not just be about playing and solving the problem but also learning about what you're doing, learning about molecular biology and learning about the bioinformatics problems that we're trying to solve at the same time. And this is what you yourself are doing? Yes, exactly. So, um, so right now we're working on educational interfaces, we're trying to explore different ways of presenting content in, in our games and, and there's a lot of interesting research in human-computer interaction that's related with that so we're really interested uh, in this right now. What sorts of people would be using this, this new platform that incorporates educational components? So ideally we would like to target um, university classes in general so we would like to have a platform that can be used by instructors to uh, prepare assignments, for example, that they could give to the students, but also to the population in general. We, want, we still want this to be accessible to uh, casual players and, and people that don't necessarily have the background in, in molecular biology or bioinformatics. So that this is why I mean, the educational interface will be very important because we want this to be accessible to the general population as well. I understand one of the, the new features will be uh, the ability to work on bacterial genomics? Yes, so that's the, basically the new, new game that we're working on. The, the game that I was talking uh, about, um, you know, the, the game that's about um, the genome sorting problem, we're trying to transform one genome into another using duplications, deletions, and inversions. So this is going to be based on bacterial genomes at first. Uh, and the reason for this is that the bacterial genomes are a little bit simpler because they have just one chromosome. So if we're, it, it's simpler to deal with. So the problem is a little bit simpler. So that's the reason why we're going to be studying bacterial genomes first. 
and there's a lot of data available on, on the gene sequences of bacteria. Oh yeah, there's a ton of completely sequenced genomes that are freely available in, in public databases. So, yeah, we, How many? Well, thousands. There's really a, a ton of data right now. And, and sequencing costs are always getting cheaper, so you know, public databases of genomes are growing exponentially right now, so it's really not a problem to get data. So do bacterial geneticists come to you guys and say, you know, we're trying to figure out what the relationship is between this bacterium and this bacterium, and uh, yeah. can you apply your, your skills to try to solve those problems and to crowdsource this? It's interesting, the whole notion of crowdsourcing and trying to solve uh, genomics problems. Crowdsourcing, so yeah, so the idea is that some problems in bioinformatics are really hard and there's no way to get an exact solution um, with an algorithm. So the best thing that we have to work with are called heuristics. So basically those are algorithms that are not guaranteed to give you an optimal solution. Uh, so for, for those types of problems, which in general we call NP-hard problems in computer science. Um, call them what? NP-hard. NP-hard. Yeah, so basically it's a class of problem uh, for which you can't easily find a solu an exact solution in polynomial time so quickly, let's say. Just Why not? What is it about the problem that makes it uh, not terribly susceptible to solution? Well, it's just that uh, if you want to find an exact solution to those problems, it would take a lot of runtime. And it could take like years, for example. So this is really not viable. Sometimes we can um, benefit a little bit from human input. So for examples, uh, for example, sometimes the, um, the problems are easily translatable to something that is visual and that humans can really help. So humans are really good at finding patterns, for example. Um, and this is something where... Visual patterns. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes it, those kinds of problems, we, we, we can benefit from their input. So that's when we try to turn to a crowdsourcing for those problems. But I mean, the idea of crowdsourcing and human computing is, in general is to combine the strengths of humans and computers. So we're trying to give some tasks to you know, participants who can, we're trying to give them some tasks that, that, that they can help with, basically. And then the, the very, very time-consuming tasks, we, we still do them with computers. But basically, it's just to try to um, combine the strengths of both humans and computers. And it's interesting that human visual intuition is perhaps more powerful than, than the intuitive capacities of computers, especially if you take uh, tens of thousands of human beings, pairs of eyes, and set them all on the same task that you can, I'm not sure what the correct mathematical word is, but you can average, average out all those human acts of human intuition, visual intuition, and arrive at something that's m more you know, more powerful than what a supercomputer can do. Yeah, so we have to be very careful about this. So, I mean, you're right, but obviously, um, you know, if we're talking about computer vision, for example, there's a lot of people working in computer vision, 
and computers are becoming better and better at those types of things as well. So we have to be careful about what we say here. But the idea is that you know there there's still some some examples of problems where, as you said, the human intuition can can really help. And you know if we talk about Philo, for example. Um, you know, so the multiple sequence alignment problem, which Philo is, is solving, is actually another very hard problem for computers. And, and the methods that we have to do this are not guaranteed to give you an optimal solution. And most of the time, like biologists, molecular biologists who are interested in you know, aligning sequences in their genomes that they're studying, most of the time they have to do some manual curation of their uh, alignments because the methods, since they don't give you an optimal solution, they're not perfect. And sometimes the the, the scientists who know about those genomes, they, they they know how to fix manually those alignments. So, you know, the idea is... So visually looking at sequences of, of uh, those four letters and saying, no, no, it's got to be this, not yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that, well, since the, the specialists and the, the experts have to do it anyway, we can crowdsource this, right? So what's what's the hardest thing about all this? I think I've asked you this already. Well, what's the what's the biggest challenge in in this kind of work? There are many many different challenges. Um, one of the challenges is to make sure that so let's say that you're trying to build a game like like Philo and like the other game that we're working on right now. The idea is to make sure that the game is engaging. Because if you don't get a big player base, then you're not going to be able to solve the problem. As you said previously, the idea is to build a consensus of all the solutions that you get from the different players. So if we don't get a, a large enough player base, then we cannot build that consensus of solutions. So that's one of the big challenges. So making sure that the game is going to be fun, engaging, and also that the users can get something from it. So uh, I think that the learning uh, and the, the educational interface that we're trying to build is going to help a lot for this as well. Thank you for joining me on the Green Blue Show. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Olivier Tremblay-Savard is an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Manitoba. The human computation platform for multi-scale genomic analysis he and his colleagues are working on is scheduled to be released to online gamers this summer. So stand by and learn more about the new improved Philo at greenplanetmonitor.net.
from an album called Black Magic. That was Samuel Maggot, a.k.a. Magic Sam. You belong to me. The senior correspondent for Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC's Neil MacDonald, put it perfectly recently in an opinion piece at CBC's website. If it looks like a duck, MacDonald began, launching into an essay about the rising acceptance of the Israeli apartheid idea, then it probably is a duck. McDonald's essay sparked predictable howls of outrage and volleys of complaints from Israel's friends and advocates here in Canada. John Dugard is one of those who believes Israel does practice apartheid, and he should know. Dugard is a South African jurist. Between 2001 and 2008, Dugard served as a special United Nations rapporteur on the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territories. I spoke with John Dugard at his home in the Netherlands. What do you make of the charge that um, that Israeli practices in, in the occupied territories amount to apartheid? And setting aside uh, inside Israel proper, quote-unquote, is, is what's going on within occupied West Bank um, equatable to apartheid? Or is this just polemical and... Uh, faulty reasoning. Well, I'm glad you drew the distinction between Israel proper and the occupied territory. That's a distinction I've always drawn because I think it's very difficult to argue that apartheid, as I knew it, applies in Israel proper because uh, Israeli Arabs do have the vote. They are allowed to hold public office uh, in Israel. And that was one of the main features of apartheid, that blacks were not uh, enfranchised. But when it comes to the occupied Palestinian territory, uh, a special rapporteur, I drew the analogy between apartheid and uh, the occupation, and I think it is a valid uh, comparison. Of course, there are two ways of looking at the subject of apartheid in the occupied territory. One is the empirical method where you reach a conclusion based on your own observations and impressions. You say this is much the same as it was in South Africa. And I I think on that basis I would also have no hesitation in saying that uh, there is a form of apartheid anyway in the occupied territory. But lawyers tend to look at it within the context of the uh, 1973 Convention on the Prohibition and Suppression of Apartheid, which is a treaty that defines apartheid and prohibits it, not only in Southern Africa, but in uh, other parts of the world, wherever it occurs. And uh, essentially there are three requirements. First of all, there should be different racial groups, and clearly there are different racial groups in the uh, uh, Palestinian territory. There are Jewish settlers and there are Palestinians, different racial groups. Secondly, the one racial group should commit uh, inhuman acts uh, upon the other, and that too is a 
condition that uh, is met because the Israeli Defence Forces and the settlers together do uh, violate many of the basic human rights of the Palestinians. And thirdly, it should be carried out with the intention of dominating uh, the uh, one racial group. And it's, it's quite clear that the settlers are the dominant group. I think it's it's essential if one looks at the whole concept of apartheid in the occupied Palestinian territory to see it in the context of settlers as colonialists in much the same way that there were settlers in or whites in South Africa of settler origin and there were colonialists and other colonies who dominate the uh, indigenous people. So what one is really saying is that the settlement enterprise gives rise to apartheid, that it is responsible for apartheid. And of course, the settlement enterprise is illegal under the Fourth Geneva Convention as well. So you think that the comparison can be made? Uh, certainly. Uh, I, I'm not the only one who makes the comparison. Increasingly, uh, Israeli uh, politicians... Uh, not only politicians on the left, but uh, across the board in Israel do make that comparison. And I, I think it's it's not a pleasant comparison, but it is a valid one. The interesting thing for me is that uh, all South Africans I know who have visited the uh, Palestinian territory come away with a sense of deja vu. They say this is just like apartheid, only it's worse. And this is not uh, only my view, it's the view mainly of black South Africans who visit the territory. So, for instance, someone like Archbishop Desmond Tutu has increasing, has uh, on many occasions said that this is a form of apartheid. You, you've spoken out, uh, among others, um, about um, what European policy, trade, investment, scientific cooperation policy should be with Israel. Can you describe your position to me? Your, your names appeared on a couple of open letters. Um, what, what would you like to see uh, the government of the Netherlands and the European Union doing uh, in terms of uh, ongoing cooperation with Israel? It, it's quite clear that... Uh Settlements are unlawful. Therefore, to me, it is very clear that the produce of settlements is unlawful, and uh, the uh, and all states, including European states, should take uh, action to uh, prohibit uh, the sale of settlement goods. Uh, in their countries. And there are European guidelines to that effect, but they aren't uh, strictly enforced. So you can go into any uh, supermarket in any European country and you'll find uh, Israeli uh, settlement goods uh, available. They don't, they're not advertisers coming from settlements, obviously, but uh, for instance, I often see uh, dates 
which are alleged to come from Israel, but I'm sure that in most cases they come from uh, settlements in the West Bank. And uh, there are some, uh, some of these Dead Sea products, like a harbour, for instance, uh, one will find on, on sale uh, in, in many countries, in, in many uh, supermarkets, one finds kiosks marketing a harbour products, and, and that's clearly illegal. And I think uh, there should be firm action to prevent the uh, sale of uh, settlement goods. Of course, the difficulty is that it's it's very difficult to uh, distinguish between uh, settlement goods and Israeli goods uh, because the, the the two are so uh, closely uh, connected. On the subject of BDS, I, I think that this BDS does pose a very serious threat to Israel because one saw the same sort of situation uh, in South Africa with uh, uh, all sorts of sanctions imposed upon South Africa. It took a long time for these sanctions to uh, to bite, as it were, but ultimately they did. And uh, they had a very important impact on South Africa, and I think what, it was one of the reasons that ultimately the apartheid regime made peace, as it were. Uh, so the, I, I go along with most of the principles of BDS. I, I, there are certain nuances which I think should be considered. For instance, if one takes the... Uh, academic boycott. Uh, in South Africa, uh, my university, the University of Advertisement and other universities were subjected to uh, the academic boycott. We were isolated. And I always thought that was grossly unfair because my university as an institution was opposed to apartheid. Every year we held a university assembly in which we reaffirmed our conviction that the university should be open to all and that apartheid should be abolished. Uh, but despite that, we were subjected to an academic boycott. Whereas in the case of Israeli universities, no Israeli university has ever, as an institution, taken a position against the occupation. And for that reason, I'm fairly sympathetic towards the academic boycott of uh, Israeli universities. Uh, on the other hand, as in the case of South Africa, I think uh, one should always welcome outside critics. I think if an academic is invited to Israel to uh, give a talk on a subject that involves taking a position on the occupation, and that speaker does take a position critical of the occupation, that that should be permitted. John Dugard served as a special rapporteur on the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territories between 2001 and 2008. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. His house is so Dead men's I can't lose. 
so hate it with dead men's I can lose And a sneak old feeling give me the old hand and hot blue I can't sleep no more I done lost my appetite Can't sleep no more I done lost my appetite My mistreating daddy hang around me day and night Anyone when I'm sleeping and it wakes me to him Amon when I'm sleeping he wakes me to him And it makes me swell how not a man but him Now I'm so worried say blue all the time I'm so worried say blue all the time Told the devil on a take-up, fix my own coffin of mine I'm scared to stay up, scared to leave the sound I'm scared to stay up, I'm scared to leave the sound How the funny told me to bind this house on down I can't sleep no more, I done lost my appetite sleep no more I done lost my appetite my mistreating daddy hang around me day and night he moan when I'm sleeping wakes me to him moan when I'm sleeping wakes me to him it makes me swell having another man but him I'm so worried, stay blue all the time I'm so worried, I stay blue all the time Told a girl to take a fix that old coffin with my hand I'm scared to see him, scared to leave this town Scared to see her, I'm scared to leave this town How the feeling just told me to bind this house on down, hand this house on down. Texas bluesman Mance Lipscomb, Haunted House Blues. When refugees from war-ravaged Syria and other failed states in the region began pouring into Europe in 2015, peaking at almost a million, Canadians imagined themselves far removed from the crisis, they learned otherwise as African migrants began pouring over the U.S. border in the dead of winter last year. Refugees on the unarmed road of flight, as Bob Dylan put it, have all sorts of ways of finding their way to Canada. I spoke with one young man who did just that from Afghanistan. His name is Moshtaba. Tell me how it is that you left Afghanistan. Why did you leave and, and what were the events leading up to your decision to leave Afghanistan? Oh, the, the, the reason that why I'm leaving Afghanistan is the first reason, actually. I have two reasons for but I'm going to tell you. Uh, the first reason is because uh, the Hazara people, they have an army, and they, they ask people to join this army and fight against Taliban. 
or terrorist. My brother, he 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 fight in this group, and Taliban kill my brother, and they know that my brother that we are that my brother has me, and they Taliban know where our house is. So the Hazara leader he asked me Juma Khan his name. He asked me to join this group and go and kill the guy who killed my brother. And I said, no, I don't want to kill people. And my my uncle and my father and my mother, they say, no, we lose one guy, we lose one son. So if you go, we're going to lose you too. Because in a war, you kill or somebody kill you, it's not like, okay, shaken hand. So you have to kill or you they're gonna kill you. And so like and that's the reason why I'm scared of Afghanistan. Because I don't wanna kill people. I don't wanna have war, killing. I lose a lot, I lose a lot in my life. I lose my best friends in the war, I lose my cousins, I lose my brother. So how did you how how did that happen? You uh you you decided to leave, and how did you arrange that? How did that happen? My uncle found this guy, and this guy said to my uncle, it costs you money to escape this country. And so we paid, like, we paid $8,000, and my uncle, because we were not so rich, and we don't have that much money. The guy said $16,000. But we say we have $8,000. So we, we, we pay $8,000 plus my uncle's car, included my uncle's car. Your uncle's car? Yes. My uncle said we have $8,000 and this is the key of the car. If you want to take this, take this guy. So the man, the, the man he, he supposed to bring me outside Afghanistan, he took this money and the car and he said, okay. In the morning, after praying, after morning praying, so I escaped Afghanistan in a truck. In a truck? In a truck. And, and you went from Afghanistan to? To Pakistan, yeah. I escaped Afghanistan in a fruit truck, in, inside the orange and fruit. And the truck is full with the tr with the fruit, and you're gonna make a small space, small place, so you can't go sit there and hide you. And there is a small gap for breathing. And I escaped Afghanistan with a truck, ten hours driving from Afghanistan to Pakistan. So I sit ten hours in the back. And after ten hours, we come into Pakistan, and the guy. He, he told me I have to stay in this house and they put me in the basement. I stayed in the basement and then after from Pakistan, I stayed two, two weeks in the basement and after two weeks they took me from Pakistan uh, to Dubai with the airplane. But then we have a big fake passport. They make a fake passport for me and I fly from Dubai, uh, from Pakistan to Dubai, and from Dubai to Egypt, and from Egypt to Canada. 
And how long did that take, flying from the moment you left Pakistan, flying to Dubai? How long did it take to get to Canada? Mm, two days, yeah. Because we flew from Pakistan to Dubai, and after when we arrived in Dubai, after two or three hours, we fly again from Dubai to Egypt, and we stay one night in Egypt, and the next day we fly from Egypt to Canada. And you arrived in Canada uh, in Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. I don't know. I didn't know it's Toronto or which city is it. So I I arrived in this airport in Toronto, and and. Uh, so there's a check board. They check my passport and they say, welcome to Canada. And what nationality passport was it? German passport. German, a fake German passport. Fake German passport, yes. So they say to me, welcome to Canada. But, and, and before we land here in Canada, the, because all the rice, all the time, the human smoker, he, he fly with me in the same airplane. Before we land here in Canada, he said, the next step is Canada. And if you pass the border, I, met, I see you outside and I, you should give me the passport and take it. And I don't know, because you're not thinking, you're just thinking and safety. So when I left the airport, I come outside and I see the guy again. And he's like, give me the passport, I give him the passport and the ticket. And this was in, two th in when was this now? Uh, 2015, February 2nd. So you arrive and it's, it's cold outside. Very cold. What are you wearing? Oh, and a uh, t-shirt with a coat, but very cold. So. Uh, <clears throat> and you just got through immigration, no problems? Yes, no problems. They check, the, they look the passport and they say, okay, Welcome and so okay, thank you. That's amazing. Yeah, and it sounds like it's easy to get into Canada with a fake passport. It sounds yeah, 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 because they like my the 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 guy this human smoker he told me only don't change your face or don't be scared, and if they ask you questions. Say nothing, only say vacation. One word, he teach me one word because I'm speaking nothing English. He teach me one word and he say vacation. If somebody asks you, say vacation and nothing else. It look very easy, but when this time my heart's gone like 10,000 times in one minute. So you step out of, the, out of the airport in Toronto, you're at Pearson International Airport. I don't know which airport is it, but this is Toronto, yeah. Yeah. Till now I don't know but a big airport, like very big airport was it. I don't know what's the name of this airport. And I don't know even the first day I didn't know that I'm in Toronto. So that the man he 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 stopped in taxi and he told the taxi driver, bring this guy to immigration office. That was the smuggler. Yes. And the taxi driver he he drive, he drove a me another guy to immigration office and immigration office say no they 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 just show it with the hands like no go and 
it's outside outside is very cold and they give us piece of paper with the names of the shelters and he say like you need a shelter and a lawyer so and go and when you stay outside like I stay outside for 20 minutes and it's cold and I don't know where I can go so I, I stop in taxi and I show him the address and this taxi driver he drove me to the shelter and he said eighty dollar. I don't know how much. I because I the human smuggler he gives me one hundred Canadian dollar and he said that's your one hundred Canadian dollar. So you have this money and go. So I give this one hundred dollar to this driver and he he, he gives me twenty dollar back. I'm happy because I'm inside the shelter and I say, Okay, no problem. The shelter is in Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. So I go inside the shelter and they told me why you are here and I say Rufuji, Rufuji, Mustawa, my name and they say to me where I'm from I say I'm not speaking any word English so I say no English and they show the map and I say Afghanistan, I show Afghanistan. <laughs> then they found another guy, he spoke my language. He's from Afghanistan. And he translated, he said, you are Canada, the city is Toronto. You are in Canada. And this house is, as Matthew has, they call him shelter. They don't have a place for you because you, you, you have, before you came, you should, you, you're supposed to call. I said, I don't know. I'm so tired. I have a long flight. I'm far from my family. So I said, I don't know all this. They said to me, okay, you can sleep here one night in the basement. And they tried to find another shelter for me. And the next day, somebody from Hamilton, his name is Scott, he came to Toronto and he picked me up. And he drove me to Hamilton, Micah House. And then I, with time I stand, and, and they told me, like, you go to Hamilton. I said, okay, I don't know. And you must have been feeling all kinds of emotions. Mm -hmm. You must have been feeling happy to be safe in Canada, but at the same time, mm -hmm. awful. Yes. Like, you have two, two, two feelings. You're sad, very sad, because you're so far from your house, and I have no phone number, I have no address, I have no email, I have nothing. And the people, like the first day is so weird for me. The first day you came to a place, you're not speaking the language, you don't know about the culture, you don't know about the country. And everything looked different, like what I, I just saw the buildings, the high buildings, and I say, where I am? Because, because all my life I'm in the country, and it's open space, like it's always open, and it, every, only what you see is a mountain and a land, so you don't see high buildings, streetcars, subway, bars. All this was for me, 
two feeling I'm, I feel I'm safe, I'm happy, but at the same time I feel I'm far from house. I, I miss my family. I spoke with Moshtaba in 2016. He's now living and studying in southern Ontario. If I should die in Taylor's Arkansas If I should die in Taylor's Arkansas And take my clothes and send them to my mother-in-law It's a long way from my hometown It's a long way from my hometown It's a long road that makes me highway Memphis bluesman and master harmonica player Charlie Musselwhite just singing on this track, Taylor's Arkansas. Old songs linger in your head after many other memories have vanished. How it is that brains shed many ordinary memories while sparing lyrics and music is one of neuroscience's great mysteries. Can hardy music circuits jog cognition and speech? Hopes are high. One thing is clear, singing old songs makes elderly people happy, and that's good for their health. Here's a story about that. So we're training volunteers this coming week, six new volunteers, to listen independently with residents. Natalie Baird is a recreation facilitator at Misericordia Health Center in Winnipeg. She and her colleagues are helping dementia patients remember and speak by getting them to sing. Often what happens is when I go and see people, they're very disengaged. After listening to a few songs, they really come back to life, I would say, and come out of their shells. Families appreciate the results, says Ellen Locke, Misericordia's rec manager. We have a good 10-15 minute reminiscence session after the music, which is huge. It sort of brings that person back to the family. Ellen, Natalie, and I go visit one of their singing residents, 89-year-old Elsie. You brought some of your favorite songs, Elsie. Oh. You feel like listening to some music? No, not really. No? 
Natalie's here. You always listen with Natalie. Elsie is awake, but distant. She'll need some warming up before music begins. At another hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Roger Dumas is investigating the secrets of music circuits in the brain and how rugged melodic pathways may help restore others that have been lost. His tool of choice? Yeah, our modes. Moog synthesizers. Analog synthesizers shrouded in cables fill Dumas's office. Gold and platinum discs he's helped produce for Janet Jackson, Prince, and switched on Bach creator Peter Schickola adorn the walls. These days, Dumas uses Moog synthesizers to tickle brain circuits and get them to sing back. The payoffs may be huge. If we can figure out how to extract a melody from the brain, we could help people who are locked in, communicate. Dumas plays Moog morsels to volunteers wearing sensor-packed helmets that detect magnetic waves sailing across the surface of their brains. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Okay. This is what the brain sounds like as it hums along. Roger Dumas's Moog Brain Interface is more than just a high-tech parlor trick. It reveals the brain's astonishing ability to process and retain music, to do complex things like predict next notes or capture melodic contour. Neural circuits like these may help restore speech and cognition circuits that have been downed by stroke or dementia. The brain is resilient and you can recruit brain areas to compensate for any loss. And uh, musical ability or musical recall may be a way to jog the memory. I think we should try listening to that song. Back in Winnipeg, a cheap pair of headphones and a few old tunes is all 89-year-old Elsie needs to perk up. Tennessee Waltz oh, by Patti Page. That one sounds good. Yeah, yeah. why don't we give Natalie slips phones over Elsie's head, then combs through a playlist on her iPod. So we'll go down to Elsie right there. Patty Page gets the nod. Yes, I lost my little darling. I introduced her to my loved one. And while they were watching, Elsie's eyes light up as she sings. She and Natalie have listened to Patty Page before. This time is different, though. You were singing the lyrics when the lyrics weren't playing, it was just the musical interlude and you knew all the lyrics. That's pretty amazing. I like my music. Yeah. Elsie wants to hear another song. Apple Blossom Time oh, by yeah. um, the Andrew, Andrew Sisters, I think. Yeah. Let's try that one. Elsie's voice is monotonous at first. With you to then she starts to express herself. Church bells will chime you. How it is that brains shed memory while sparing lyrics and music is one of neuroscience's great mysteries. Can hardy music circuits jog cognition and speech? Hopes are high. One thing is clear. Singing old songs makes elderly people happy, and that's good for their health. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Oh. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM 
University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye.